Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. You're about to listen to part two of our bonus special, Fun to Be Happy, O3L in Conversation with Love Tractor. If you haven't already, make sure to download the main episode where we discuss our top five guitar heroes with Mark, Mike, and Army. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this special episode of Only Three Lads. We were all friends with all those bands because we also all had Frank Riley was our booking agent. And so we all, 10,000 Maniacs replacements. It was almost like a Motown review because we would all end up hooking up and doing shows and tours together. The DBs. We were all in the family. We never played with this band, but they were good friends. And um, this is one guitar player that can play doodly, doodly, doodly. But he played it to me so fresh was um, Kirk Kirkwood from the Meat Puppets. I I used to love his guitar playing. None of us could really play like that, but he gave it a fresh angle. It wasn't faster and cleaner than Clapton. It was going the other way. Now you're talking Greg's home turf. Yeah. (laughs) He also taught us how to drive through the desert at night and not in the daytime. Yeah, that was Chris. (laughs) But um, we were on the same booking agent with them and... um, so we were just always, they'd come through Athens. We'd all look after each other. They'd look after us in Phoenix. Yeah, Tempe. Venture Booking out of New York had sort of the college, it was like the college rock agency. And we got hooked up with them from uh, Richard Barone from the Bongos mm. saw us play. And Richard and I became good friends. It was called Singer Management at the time. So we got signed by Singer Management, and Frank Riley took over, basically took all the artists and started venture booking. And it was all of the bands from that era, and we all did shows together. We knew each other. We'd bump into each other. We'd stay with each other. You know, all the big-time bands were with him. We knew all of them. It was interesting. I mean, it's kind of like I'm surprised there's not some kind of college rock reunion or something. Sounds like a really good documentary. Yeah. You know, that whole yeah. time. It does. It does. It was interesting because then through that, we would find out like who would have been bar, you know, people would come up and say, oh, we really like this song. I, you know, I lifted that bass line off your song or I lifted that guitar lick off of this song. And we were like, that's cool. We were touring with New Order and it was somewhere in Texas where they came Austin. out. It was all, we did a yeah, killer show in Austin. And opening, we were opening for them, and it was the what? What album was that on? For that? Well, they were doing mostly the synth stuff, but um, yeah, Bizarre Love Triangle was the single. I think, I think it was the Power Corruption and Lies tour, but I maybe no, okay. it was after that because they'd gotten more synth. Oh, okay. But they were they were playing some songs off of Power Corruption and Lies when that album came out. I remember we were at a party and summer 1983 and rem was off on tour and we wanted to be on tour but uh we were working in a new drummer and um, there was a party at one of the guy's girlfriend's house and they had the new new order album and it starts off with the that kind of drumming and when we did our first album our first album sounds just like we sounded live you know it was not laid back at all we're playing really fast and um 
And just like in Chronic Town, Bill was saying, you know, I can't play. I could never play that fast now. But I guess we were nervous or something. And I remember Kit saying, um, gosh, our first album's a little fast, isn't it? But everybody liked it, so we didn't care. But when that um, New Order album came out, at that party, Kit said, this is too fast. This sounds like our first album. It's like, so a couple years later, we're touring with them. And in Houston, we were about to drive up to Dallas. And I ran back in to get something and they were playing Everything Gone Green. I think you all were in the van. And I wanted to catch the end of that because I always liked that song. I remember when Mike bought that record when it first came out. And so after that song, I was about to leave and Hooky goes into right before the drums come in, Bernard goes, Love Tractor. And I ran out to the band and I said, Man, y'all aren't going to believe this. But because we always suspected that they had um, listened to us. Then in Austin, for some reason, uh, they were doing more synth stuff. And Austin, they like real music. I mean, Alejandro Escovedo oh, yeah. came backstage. He was going, this isn't music, because it was just doing all synth. But somebody had shouted out Love Tractor, and they played that song, um, Leave Me Alone, the last song on Power, Corruption, Power and Lies, yeah. which we think sort of sounds like. The bass reminds me of my bass line on Chili Dam Willie, and the guitar line is Mike's guitar line from Tropical. And, uh, and that's like, a, don't you I always wondered, when, yeah. yeah, when we first met them, you know, we were in that trailer and the guys from New Order came in, they're like, oh, I you know, like they, you know, wanting to meet us. And English bands were usually more standoff than that. They were funny. But the reason why some nights they would be all guitar and then other nights it would be all synthesizer with a sequencer running it, it depended on how hard they partied the night before. I think you're right about that. (laughs) And they partied hard. So if they were really hungover and tired, it would be press the button, turn the sequencer on, and it'd be Blue Monday and Bizarre Love Triangle, all those synth songs. God, they were jamming in Houston, though. I I wish we could have stayed for the show, but for some reason we had to drive to... Dallas. I mean, they said that that's how Blue Monday was created because they wanted a song where they could just push a button and come out for their encore and not have to do a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like them. (laughs) That sounds like them. I mean, they're great guys. We were New Order fans. So, yeah, um, Mark Williams, uh, he was at either Virgin or AM at the time, set us up on that tour. He was an AR guy. He I think he was a president of A&R at Interscope most recently. He was from Atlanta, an old friend of ours. He always helped us with our record deals. You know, he's like, you're going to have fun. You're going to get along with these guys. <laughs> I remember him telling me that. Um, also, you know, another guitar player who we all love is David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. You know, I mean, I think we all love Pink Floyd. He's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like how unfussy he is. I mean, he never overplays. Right. And especially for a lead guitar player, he doesn't overplay it. He just has that beautiful sustain. Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that somebody from art school art school posted that picture of David Gilmore and his teenage daughter? She's got a guitar around him. He's showing her a chord like like the father. He goes, 
what do you do when you're an old man as the guy, guitar player from Pink Floyd? And she's got this look on her face like, would you please leave me alone? I'm trying to play some typical teenager. Come on. Yeah. Don't tell me what to do. I can do it myself. <laughs> we don't need no education, Dad. <laughs> you have to say, it's like the English really took American R&B and blues and kicked it up a notch. I mean, you know, you've got to look at Keith Richards and... Jimmy Page and David Gilmore and these guys, and again, standing on the shoulders of giants, but they all say, you know, they grew up listening to all this Mississippi blues and R&B and Little Richard. I love Lightning Hopkins. Yeah. Howlin' Wolf. That's who I like. Oh, God, yeah. 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 Me too. Question for each of you. What is your favorite guitar? Mike? Oh, God. I guess it's going to probably be the Fender Deluxe I'm going to have to go with. The Telecaster Deluxe. That's a great guitar. Fender Deluxe. But I also love those Les Pauls and and Strats, too. Yeah, I'm all Fender. I'm a Fender guy. I've got the Strat from our love tractor strat i love that guitar but mark had a hackstrom that that was a big part of our sound on the first album was that hackstrom every guitar gives you something a little bit different when you're touring at least for me touring i needed to come up with like a real workman's guitar and i discovered that a fender telecaster kind of covered all bases and it was proven out to me embarrassingly we did a show at the university, a big show at outdoor show at the University of Florida. And Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson opened the show. And Mick Ronson was one of my childhood guitar heroes. You know, I walk up on stage and he's got, you know, like a Fender Deluxe Reverb amp, a fuzz pedal, and a wah-wah pedal that he keeps cocked and locked in a certain position mm-hmm. that gives a certain sound. And then just a Telecaster. And if Mick Ronson, if that's his rig, because he was like a working man's guitar player right. and, a, and a brilliant guitar player, then that was what was good for me. They probably wanted that slot, not the hoople. But uh, Mark and Mike, y'all were uh, like, oh my God, there's Mick Ronson. That's, that's Mick Ronson. <laughs> and so we're going into the line to eat uh, the crafty. And, um, I was standing next to Mick Ronson and I said, the guitar players in my band are afraid to talk to you. They're afraid to meet you. And he's like, well, why would that be? He was so freaking nice. Well, that's crazy. You know, I don't see why they'd be so, you know, he was absolutely charming. So did you guys get the chance then? Did Army break the ice for you guys? I told him, but they probably were like this. I think I did. I don't remember. You'd remember. You chickened out. I think I chickened out. <laughs> Armstead remembers everything <laughs> more than any of us. So he's, But we, at a certain point in the 80s, I guess really from like 85 until 91 or something, we were on the road, I mean, at least 200 shows a, a year. Wow. You know, we were – it was t- – burnout you know i don't remember a lot it's not like i was doing drugs or drinking or anything but it was just this sort of every night going it was really hard totally clean 
Mark was clean and sober, and now he's like this. What happened? I forget. <laughs> but he knows his way around the computer, so there's something. <laughs> Everybody's got we, different memories. That's the clean. Well, we were pretty clean and sober. Well, what are some surreal moments? I mean, besides what you were just talking about meeting Mr. Ronson, what are some of the surreal moments that you remember from back in your career that still just kind of resonate today? <laughs> well, uh, laughter kicks. That's, we, that's always a good sign. Something you were sober, remember? Some I can't go into. I don't know if this is surreal, but um, when we were um, on tour with the Bees, we got to um, play Radio City Music Hall. Was we did three or four nights there, and we used to do songs like Party Train and stuff like that. We only did those kind of songs when you'd be in the Midwest. And we'd be playing our art rock and people would be looking at you weird. And then all of a sudden we just, all right, let's play Shattered Break by Rolling Stones. Stones. And everybody's like, all right, this band rocks, you know. And, uh, <laughs> like R.E.M. could go out and play places like that because they, they had some good covers. But um, the structure of their songs was a little less weird than ours. So um, we did a cover of the Marvin Gaye um, Got to Give It Up, which we used to we had a cover band in Athens called Wheel of Cheese, and R.E.M. would join us and play. And for some reason, we added that to the set, and um, Mark sang it. The third night, our friends from the Now Explosion out of Atlanta were all there, Fe- a great band. And uh, Larry T., who wrote songs for RuPaul, used to tell us, I love y'all's version of Got to Give It Up because it reminds me of, it's like Fleetwood Mac's version of Got to Give It Up. I always thought that was great. We get there and um, RuPaul and Lahoma and everybody from the Now Explosion crew are there. And um, my mother was with me and we walked into his dressing room and uh, it was before Ru was a star. I mean, he's always been a star, but uh, I said, RuPaul, this is my mom. And RuPaul says, is he your son? You should be very proud. <laughs> but when we got to got to give it up, you know, the now explosion would play and drag and uh, RuPaul and Lahoma was there a third person out there. There was got up and they were like our they were our go go dancers at uh, Radio City Music Hall. Wow. And, uh, I, I remember after that show, people coming backstage. I think Nile Rogers was there. They had to. The tour rap party afterwards, and uh, Joe Jackson was there, and all these people came back. But that was kind of surreal, don't you think? Yeah, Rue was great. I think I the mean, whole ten years of it was pretty surreal. <laughs> <laughs> there was always something. It was all, yeah, you know, never you never know who you'd run into or end up with, and you know, I mean, I had a crazy evening with. Belinda Carlisle and Yorma Kalkinen. You got Bueno's attention with Belinda. Which I yeah. won't go into. Yeah, was that before Beauty and the Beat? Uh, I think so. Was- oh, so then we know the kind of party it was. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, there was always stuff that just seemed like regular to us. Mike Mills and I had a whole night with Iggy Pop and oh. his hotel room and it was one of, you know, it was insane. It was absolutely insane. And his backing band were the guys from Blondie. And God, that was a great show. Yeah, that was, it was a great show. And then, you know, afterwards, I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to say what went on. But, <laughs> Sex and drugs know, and rock called, and roll. Some yeah. ID. <laughs> you know, I called Mills the next day 
kind of to go over, ah, what a crazy night hanging out with Iggy. And he goes, I know I got home and I reached in my pocket and there Iggy always had these little John Lennon glasses. And he says, I reached in my coat pocket and I had Iggy's glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Does he still have them? Didn't he kick Mills out of the room or something like that? Oh, lose his yeah. Temper and- oh, they um, yeah. It almost came to fisticuffs. <laughs> when well, we were to, yeah. about to tour themes from Venus, a friend of my cousin's is doing the hair on uh, did the hair on hairspray in Baltimore and was working on Crybaby and um, Iggy Pop was in that and I met him there. I just I got to go hang out a little bit. I met Johnny Depp. I didn't know who he was, but weren't we going to be in Crybaby? She wanted us to come up for that, but we were about to go on tour, and my girlfriend really wanted to go up. But when she introduced me to Johnny Depp, she said, um, "Hey, do you know the band Love Tractor?" With her Baltimore accent, and he goes, "Yeah," because yeah, you know, I was like, "All right, he knows Love Tractor." But I, and uh, but I told Iggy Pop, I was like, "You, you came to Athens one time, and I, he'd stayed with Tommy Adams in his basement. It was a basement, right?" And I, and I said, I think you, uh, one of your gigs, you kicked Mike Mills out of your hotel room. I did that. <laughs> I, <didn't hear. laughs> I did that. Tommy uh, Adams was a friend of ours in Athens who had been Debbie Harry's personal assistant and had befriended Iggy. That's how we got the introduction to Iggy. He was a real gentleman. Yeah. Well, we played with the Bangles like up in like Blacksburg, Virginia one night. Then we jammed with them on the encore with push, pushing too hard. They're wonderful people, uh, the Bangles. Vicki Peterson can play the heck out of a guitar. And Sue Hoffs is a great singer. We came back from a long tour across the country. We tended, if everybody was uh, tired, sometimes we would be a little bratty. And there was a band that was opening for us at Reed College uh, from Austin, and they were doing a cover of Pushing Too Hard. And um, Mike was in a bad mood, and he started going, man, I can't believe they're doing this song. I hate this song, or something like that. <laughs> and um, so then as we then we worked our way down to California and across, and the whole time it was like, man, Frank Riley's tours are pushing too hard. You know, we, we kept joking about that song, uh, that they had done that. Then we get back to Athens, and, and we just found out we've got four shows with the Psychedelic Furs. And on that tour, we were going to play with um, the Bangles in Blacksburg, Virginia. And at first, we were crabby about it because we were so tired. But it ended up being really fun, a really great leg of the tour. The Bangles were absolutely wonderful. Uh, and we they were just so gracious to us. And, um, you know, back then, you'd always get on stage and jam with each other, like with the True Believers and Alejandro we always end up, and the Bengals said, "Y'all want to get up on a song?" Um, and uh, and we we're like, "Yeah, what what song should we do?" And I made a couple of jokes about, "I want to do Sylvester's uh, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real," <laughs> and I got a little laugh, you know, from Debbie Peterson on that. And uh, Vicky goes, "What about pushing too hard? It's only two chords." <laughs> And the next thing you know, we're up, me, Mark, and Mike are all out there with guitars. You're pushing too hard. And I look over at Mike, and Mike's leaning into it, getting into it like it's his favorite song in the world. And then Vicky takes a solo that's rip-roaring, just 
badass. And excuse me, I didn't mean to say that. That's okay. Bad to the bo- We're okay. Bad you, you, can to the bone. you can say it on and, the show. Um, and, you know, she's just great stage presence. And then she looks over to me and signals for me to take a lead. <laughs> and then I said, my lead sounded like this. Doink, 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 doink. We're pushing too hard. Doink, 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 doink. While she was like, <laughs> you know, tearing it up. Beautiful lady. Then the dude takes this like, it was like uh, Louie Louie. <laughs> but that was a funny story. You're pushing too hard. I love pushing too hard, but I, I will never too. listen to that song the same way again. <laughs> well, Mike liked it too, but he was in, um, can you say B-I-T-C-H on the radio? Say whatever was, you want. Yes. He was in bitch mode that night and he's... I was like, man, I can't believe they're doing this song. And you know, everybody can be a brat. We we all would be brats together. And I joined in with them. Man, I can't believe they're doing it either. And then a few weeks later, we're in Blacksburg pushing too hard. There were so many crazy things that I I remember the Smiths coming to see us at Danceteria. What was the band that had Tainted Love? Soft Cell. Soft Cell. Soft yeah. Soft, cell. soft cell. You know, you meet all these guys. You know, there's a thing of, between musicians where you just like you're all in the same business. You know, hi, how you doing? Soft cell. I think we're going to. They were just standing in line going to the disco. I don't think they were there to see us. <laughs> Damn them! <laughs> <laughs> I hate them. Do you all remember the Scottish band, the Bluebells? Oh yeah, yeah. Kath. Kath, the whoa, whoa, they were so nice, and I'm. Um, you know, we opened for R.E.M. at the Danceteria, one of the first times we played. It was just like, wait a minute, you know, and that was a really fun show. And um, But then we started to headline, but this night we were opening for the Bluebells, and they were just wonderful. And um, I get off, uh, and one of the guys, I couldn't understand what he was saying, who's this union stage? I was like, what? How's this union stage? Then I realized he was going, how's this union stage? <laughs> So uh, after the show, we were talking about their accents, and uh, Mark was imitating one of the members that he was really tired on this tour, and he told Mark, he goes, I can't wait to get home to my girlfriend. I'm going to split her from ear to ear. (laughs) (laughs) They had these glass, really thick Glaswegian accents, and... They were they were nice guys. That's when we all had when we all had sexual drive. <laughs> I'm going to split it from ear to ear. Now that might get cut out. <laughs> well, the most important question. Well, which one of you three guys dated Kate Pearson? None of us. Oh. But I was in love with her. Oh, Mike, no. you and Cindy were in the same homeroom in high school. We were. Yeah, Cindy Wilson and I were in a homeroom because our last names are close in the alphabet. So yeah, I remember just being blown away because I went into the Navy after high school, but I was really into like, you know, new wave and all the music that was happening. And by the time I was getting ready to come back home, I, I discovered the B-52s. And then I found out that Cindy Wilson was in, I was like totally blown away that Athens had some band, you know, this band that came out of. Wait, Cindy was so yeah. shy and she was, Kate was, and Ricky and Keith always came to our shows and then later, Fred was a Love Tractor supporter because Fred was mysterious. And then he came up to Mark one time and said, I really love y'all's album. And he became great friends. But Cindy was very shy. She was always shy. But once we did meet her, I and I said, uh, what was Mike like in high school? And Cindy said, he was cute. <laughs> <laughs> 
I <laughs> you know, usually we had the surreal moments would be in L.A. Remember Armstead? We were at Duke's on Santa Monica, that sandwich shop yeah. that everybody, you know, like Tina Louise would be in there. I missed And Black that. Oak, Arkansas was. Yeah. Wait, you were there when Black Oak, Arkansas Yeah, but was I missed Tina Monica. Louise. You said, Tina Louise was just here. <laughs> Dukes and uh, Robert Lloyd did a LA Weekly interview with us there. But what did you, didn't you, we, you were doing something with, with Jim Dandy? Like he was sitting in the booth behind us. No, that was one of the guys from the Stray Cats. Uh, I was doing some kind of rockabilly thing and we're going to rock this town. And, they, and you said, hey, he's right behind you. And I went, oops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't, I was just singing it. I wasn't being a brat. You were making fun of them. We cut some of themes from Venus with um, Brendan O'Brien, who went on to be a real, you know, big, big producer of like Pearl Jam. Yep. And Brendan's a really great guy and he's really funny. And he had these tapes, these isolation tapes of Jim Dandy from Black Oak, Arkansas, in the vocal booth. So you're not hearing any music, you're hearing Jim Dandy, and he's like, Jim Dandy to the rescue. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what was he? It was just his vocal, and it was like, it was coming in, it was like, it was like some kind of like, it wasn't Popping Jim up Dandy a hairball? the rescue. Was, yeah, he just did the vocal, some... he isolated the vocal, and it was like, some kind of, <laughs> and everybody was cracking up in the control. Dan Baird from the Georgia Satellites came by on that <laughs> session. Yeah. That was the themes from Venus session. So we got tapes of um, Brendan's mix. We should explore that. But uh, we always wanted our independence. Everybody moved to Athens to be near REM or to be like REM. And we always kind of avoided that while we never um, worked with Mitch. But on themes from Venus... We gave Mitch a shot. I remember we drove after a gig in Memphis and we went to Winston-Salem and laid down some hay mess and I forget what else. And then came back to Athens and Danny set us up with Brendan and we went and worked with Brendan, but it was sort of like, you know, I think Mitch is more our style or something like that. And so that's why we ended up really loving working with Mitch. And yeah. We shouldn't have ever avoided him, but then it turns out Brendan O'Brien was huge after that. I've got um, mixes, which we should consider for the re-release that Brendan did of Broke My Saw and some other stuff. Let's do that. It's without sacks. Make a nice deluxe reissue. Yeah. Why not? It's fun. You know, there were crazy things all the time, and it just doesn't seem crazy. You know, <laughs> it was your life. It, yeah, it was our life, and it's only certain times I'll be someplace and it comes up. I, my business partner was Andy Warhol's creative director oh. from the early 70s until when Andy died. And, you know, he has all these crazy stories, and he can never remember them because everything was crazy until somebody walks in the room. And he goes, oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, my God. And then this whole story will come out. So it's the same thing for me. Until I see somebody, you know, it's like it doesn't happen or it doesn't come out. There were surreal moments. You need something to, like, spark that neuron to make it fire off and make it, oh, I yeah, do. I remember. usually happened in L.A. Greg, were you the one that asked about who dated Kate Pearson? Yes. Well, um, Danny Beard used to go out with her. I was always jealous of him because – She's, God, I just always had a huge crush on her. But Kate was so good to us. 
And before uh, South by Southwest, um, remember the New Music Seminar in New York? It was oh, like yeah. 1984. And Kate had a brownstone on 26th Street or 23rd, 26th, I think. 27th. It was 27th by the Armory. We were headlining Irving Plaza and um, three venture acts. The Cucumbers from New Jersey were opening up and 10,000 Maniacs were the middle band. And we were very close with the 10,000 Maniacs. They'd come to Athens. And um, I slept on Kate's... Kate's yeah, um, how close, Armstead? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we jammed together. Uh, I'm sleeping on Kate's couch she was always uh you know there was a stereo in there and record players and she and her boyfriend tim lived there well at the new music seminar i don't know where mike was but mark was doing his duty and you had met steve Wynn that day and said he's a really nice guy yeah. and uh steve is a great friend of ours and he lives down the street from me now oh. and um but natalie was walking by and um you know, we'd had a fun night. We jammed the night before, and we were all kind of hippie-ish. I was the hippie of the band. And um, my sister worked at Time Magazine next door. And so Natalie's got her records, and we're pushing our bands. And I said, hey, you want to go over to the Time Magazine? I want to say hi to my sister, and then we can go over to Kate's house. And so we played hooky and went over and said hi to my sister and her friends. And then we walked all the way to Kate's house. And uh, Natalie met Kate and uh, gave her the 10,000 Maniacs EP that was added to Kate's collection. And then we walked back and <laughs> and the new music seminar was over for the day. And Mark, you did your duty and talked about all the things you did. It didn't affect the 10,000 Maniacs career that Natalie went yeah. there that day. <laughs> I got to say hello to Madonna. I think Lou Reed was on the panel or something. Yeah. Madonna, all those. That was the age of all the, like, CMJ and New Music Seminar and all those things that you'd have to go play. And South by Southwest. In fact, we played the very first South by Southwest. Probably a lot different. For years, they always would invite us back. We played it, like, maybe three times, I think. Yeah, it was always great. And then there were times that they were advice where we were just like, no, we're not driving out there for that. Another thing about our career was everybody assumed we were signed. And signed acts were sent out on the road to open for us and uh, be exposed to our crowd. And we never had any tour support. We were just like this working band <laughs> out there working <laughs> for a living. And we weren't very well managed. And we were also art rockers, so fiercely independent. Yeah, Fear, yeah, couldn't be managed. I think you're kind of right there. I think it was really hard for anyone that managed us. We weren't very fair to our <laughs> <laughs> Well, you guys were younger, you know. We, you were just, you know, wanting to make your dreams come true, doing it your way. You know, that sort of thing. We needed the 70s business model, you know, where bands got to like experiment and like Pink Floyd got to make 10 out, 10 weirdo albums before Dark Side of the Moon. You know, by the time yeah. we came along in the 80s, it was like, oh, you got to have a hit now or, you know, or we don't care. Exactly. Again, it comes yeah. down to that units, you know, if they like the old record labels of the 60s, they put out art and then now it's just putting out units. Yeah. It's more of a corporate business and that's where i think probably the mid 80s i was too young to really understand any of that but you guys lived it so was it kind of getting more corporate at that time definitely it was very corporate yeah we were at the tail end of like 
you know, bands getting deals where they could develop, you know, it was on its way out for us. And we needed that because we were like more experimental. Each one of our albums were like transitional records in a way, you know, because we were, you know, hmm. evolving and doing stuff, but we just didn't get the support we needed. Like bands like used to get like Pink Floyd or, Whatever. DB was the label for us artistically, but uh, you know you'd have to have somebody with muscle to. We were always in independent record stores, and um, one time we had a box of records with us. Nobody ever. I was talking to Mills about it. He goes, nobody ever carried merchandise with them back then. But I remember after a show, we sold all our records. Uh, it was the one with neon the neon lights till the cows come home. And uh, it's like, man, we just made a bunch of money, but um, we didn't think about it that way. T-shirts or records, and um, which was what bands do today. And people would hear us songs on the radio, see us live, and they couldn't find our record. And it wasn't until Big Time Records that we, you know, we'd see our record in a mall, uh, and that we were out on cassette finally, because before <laughs> it was only being on vinyl. And then DB would reissue all the stuff. And piggyback on that distribution. American record stores could take the the album, but if it didn't sell, they could return it. Or like in Europe, I guess they would buy the record and put it in their store. So that was kind of tough. And we got a fan letter from somebody that said, uh, I found theme from Venus in Minneapolis. I live somewhere in Canada and I, and I found the other record in Toronto. So the one record he found was 500 miles away, and then the other one was 400 miles away. And it's like, I'm just, Love Tractor is my favorite Athens band. You know? I know, and there's no internet to like, you know, or an eBay or anything like yeah. that then. And, you know, we were at the behest of these capricious labels that, you know, wanted to sell units, as you say. And, when, like Mike was saying, it was the tail end of that artist development where they wanted to sign you to a multi- album deal and work you slowly and build you and guide you and it wasn't happening it just they wouldn't do it i you know i would i remember up in atlantic that's what i was looking for and they were like no we want hits we need hits right away they were making tons of money i mean at a certain point the labels were selling vinyl cassettes and cds at the same time and so people were buying multiple versions one person would go in and buy an album in three different versions yeah. and so the labels raking in money you know it's not like labels ever gave a damn about the band ever i mean columbia there were some certain artist labels columbia was a certain point warner brothers was atlantic certainly was you know but it depended on the time and you know for us we missed it by like maybe three years the b-52s really got sort of that deal they got an artist development deal rem really didn't because they were on irs they were on an independent but they were basically making all the money for irs and when they developed enough you know they jumped over to warner brothers and got at the time i think one of the biggest deals of any band in history you know, Burtis was smart. I don't know how he structured the contract, but it's like they didn't tour on every one of those Warner Brothers records. And I don't think they particularly cared how many units that Warner Brothers sold. 
you know, they, I think green and out of time and automatic for the people, uh, you know, sold a ton of units yeah, for Warner Brothers. Can I tell you all an embarrassing story in the world of uh, when Bill said he's leaving Love Tractor? Absolutely. Yes. I remember we, we were practicing for um, our last show, and I remember playing cowboy songs and thinking how great we sounded with Bill and how it's just I was almost in tears. But Mike was kind of pissed about it. And um, I think we got a good review or something that praised us. And Mike said, Bill's going to get the Pete Best Award. And Mark said, who's Pete Best? And, and Mike is the drummer that quit the Beatles. <laughs> I love that confidence, though. <laughs> Gotta have that. But we, we were always cocky about our music, so it still are. But, but it was such a great review. It was like, and, and we were... Uh, we were doing new things and cocky about it. And oh, like said, so Bill's going to get the Pete Best Award. <laughs> Don't feel bad because then, because then he left REM in 97, right? So he, after yeah. his brain aneurysm a few years yeah. earlier. Yeah. He did the right thing. Oh, yeah. You know. But he, he did all right for himself. He developed both of our bands. I mean, you know, he was, he was a drum hero. Like we were saying, the drummers were the heroes and, I remember the bees had just recorded Wild Planet and R.E.M. had just finished playing um, Tyrone's or Pylon and Bill walked by and Craig Woodall was standing with Ricky because there's Bill. He drums with R.E.M. You should tell him he's great. And Ricky was too shy to say anything, but uh, I told Bill that. (laughs) But he was a star, you know, and um, he cracked both bands into shape. He's very, he's very uh, precise. And, um, yeah, he's very exact. Meticulous. Uh, he's very exact. And um, you can hear that. And, and he's a great guitar player since we were supposed to be talking about guitars. He plays wonderful <laughs> rhythm acoustic. He just writes these really? hits all the time. And he uh, wrote a lot of the guitar chops in R.E.M. I think he wrote Seven Chinese Brothers. I think he wrote the do 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 yeah and a uh, man on the moon the the first two chords on that uh, if you take your c chord and move up to slide it up a whole step yeah yeah uh, bill said that he was just strumming a c and he reached over to grab his drink and his hand slid up to the d and peter said do that again and so <laughs> that's the intro to man on the moon oh, wow. and uh, i think driver eight or there's other songs that He's in on guitar-wise. Armstead, so. do you remember when we would play New York and like Keith and Ricky would always show up at the shows? And I remember they would always come and they'd been they would always come from practice. And they'd be like, "We just wrote this song and it's called you know, uh, name one of their songs." You know, I remember like we just wrote this song called "Throw This Beat in the Garbage Can" or something <laughs> like that. You know, we just wrote the song. It's called Mesopotamia, and they'd be so excited about it. Gosh, you know, wanted uh, to share it all. Mark and our huge uh, Ricky and Keith groupies, understandable. And I know Mike loves them too. But we were just always blown away by their musicianship, and but we wouldn't want to try to sound like them. We were just always yeah. just so excited with what they would come up. Well, with. Keith wrote that guitar line on um, our song Elevator. Really? Um, that's on the sky at night. That bump, 
That rhythm guitar part. He played it a little more R and B though. Yeah, like um, like um, the wind cries Mary, more Hendrix like. And then Mark, I found those tapes. And Mark's uh, version of it is very Mark. Mark's plays very architecturally. I got Doug to play it. Doug Stanley, who is who's in Love Tractor now, fabulous. He's from the Glands. Great band. A great Athens nineties yeah. band. Fabulous band. Um, but Keith threw that English on it. You know how. Um, R&B guitar players play like Jimi Hendrix does it on Wind Cries Mary and that yeah. kind of but Keith can play like that he, we'll have to do the Keith version one day he's really unsung also somebody that we all really loved at the time was Vinnie Riley from Derudy Column mm-hmm. um, what he was doing with guitar it was like you know guitar and a drum machine and it was also very soundtracking cinematic we would all sit over at Kits and listen to that all that stuff from England, but Vinnie Riley was a big influence. Yeah, played with Morrissey too. Yeah, and you know it was it was funny because I remember right when we were starting up, the Feelies put out their first album, Crazy Rhythm. Oh yeah, and we loved that. Yeah, and then we ended up becoming best friends with the Feelies and doing shows together and. And now they do a cover of Fun to Be Happy off our first album yeah. when they play live. I saw them in 1999 over in Jersey City in this theater. And it, they played only Lou Reed songs that night. Wow. They were so good. <laughs> they were so, so, so good. And Richard Barone came out and was jamming with them. And the place was packed. It was packed. Incredible. Yeah. They were touring in the late 80s. And I... Uh, came through Athens and stopped in and we were all hanging out together. They're very quiet, but they had some kind of camper. And Mark, this is your story. Yeah. Bill, Mark wanted to see the camper and Bill Million was uh, showing Mark everything that's all the accessories. And he said, and we have a tape deck and he, he ejected the tape deck and it was our first album. (laughs) It was in their tape deck. Isn't that And you, yeah, you were like, Bill right. just showed me the camper, and he had our first album in the, in the tape deck. High praise. <laughs> yeah. High wow. praise, yeah. That makes a man proud. Segment one, our longest ever. We just broke a record. Every record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're really verbose. I could sorry. listen to you guys tell yeah. stories all, all day long. Day we're we're going to break this into uh, two separate. Yeah. 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 But what's It might so take cool. me a week to edit it, but. Yeah, no, this is awesome because <laughs> we learn so much just by listening to you guys who've been there and the things Heck that you yeah. say. I mean, it's like it's the long form, but it's definitely uh, it's very interesting. Exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're glad to tell the story. It doesn't get told much the right way. We don't have to record it, but um, I do have a Chrissy Hines story. Thanks to Kate, uh, that um, I thought you all would find. Yeah, interesting absolutely um, the, record the, it though pretend <laughs> yeah okay do you want me to go put the dog in the back room and i come back or uh, i can tell it real quick he's not barking right yeah, sure. no, go for it i was in athens and um the bees were on tour with the pretenders and um i drove all the way up from athens and i always had a car load of dogs and one of the dogs i lived in the country and people would dump dogs so i'd find them homes but i had like three in the car and one of them was this cute little lemon beagle that had i had to 
amputate his leg. He had two broken legs and a, and a bad one in the back. And sometimes I'd carry him in my arm with my hand under his butt, and he'd use his good paw on my thumb, and it looked like he he looked like Winston Churchill with a cane. <laughs> and he was just a ha- real handsome beagle. So I drove all the way up, and I made it to the show, and my dogs were in the car. And um, and uh, after the show, I went um, – I saw the drummer of the Pretenders. I forget Mark his name. And, yeah, and I was like, whoa, that's the – and uh, so I went back to say hi to um, Kate. And I said, hey, to, I just went back to say hi to Fred. And I walked into the room and there's Fred, but there's Chrissy Hines sitting on the couch. And I was like, oh, and she had these like, gold shoes on. And she looked at me real like suspicious. Like uh, I was like, oh, my God, that's Chrissy Hines. And I was and she had this R about her like. Uh, and uh, Fred was like, hey, Army, how you doing? And then Kate walked in and. You know, I was just, I was trying not to geek out. And Kate goes, Army, did you bring any dogs? And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, I did. And I I ran out to the parking lot and I grabbed the beagle. And I came back holding him in the Winston Churchill. He had this really handsome head. And he was real little. And I walk into the room holding him, you know, and he's got him his paw on my thumb like he's holding a cane. And I walk into the room and that severe beautiful Chrissy Hahn, tough. As soon as I walk in the room, she goes, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I put Kip on the uh, floor and, um, you know, he's just charming everybody in the room and Aww. Chrissy's all over him and Kate and Fred and Fred's like, I wonder if he likes vegetarian, you know, cause they have, all they had is vegetarian food back there. And then we just talked about Kip the whole time and his story, how he was dumped with two broken legs and trying to save the legs and it couldn't be saved. And one of them just cartilaged up. So she, he sort of had three legs to work with, but that, he was this adorable dog that was so game. And so after it was all over, I was getting ready to leave and I had Kip in my arms. I was getting ready to walk out and Chrissy Hine walks out of the room and then she turns to me and goes i hope you can come to more shows oh. <laughs> i'm like yes but bring the dog with you <laughs> oh yeah it was about the dog for sure but she was just when she saw him and went oh my god it was i have a three-legged scene. dog now <laughs> she i met her after a bees show she was i mean god she's awesome She's okay. I think she sings pretty good. <laughs> good God. Oh, man, I could have used that what dog when I, when I met her that one day in Licorice Pizza in Santa Barbara because she was just not very friendly. So that was, Very severe. Yeah. I mean, I walked in. It was like, it was like I could feel the air. Oh, like, yeah. Do not enter. Yeah. Don't even come close to me. <laughs> but as soon as the 13-inch lemon beagle comes in, it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Bueno's taking notes right now. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. All right. Well, let's stay in touch. We'll do. Definitely. All right, guys. Thank you so much. All right, guys. I can't wait to meet you you in person. Thank you. Likewise. All right. All right, y'all. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a great day. All right. Enjoyed it. Just once again, want to thank Mike, Army, and Mark from Love Tractor. I mean, a lot of great guitarists in alternative music, especially in classic alternative music during the O3L era. Thank you to our special guest, Love Tractor, for their time, generosity, and incredible memories. 
Guys, you are certainly welcome back on O3L anytime, and we look forward to seeing you back on tour soon. The music you are hearing is Fun to Be Happy from Love Tractor's lovingly remixed, remastered reissue of their seminal debut, now available at finer music retailers. On behalf of Uncle Greg, Bueno, and me, Brett Vargo, we sincerely appreciate you listening. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com slash only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.